Welcome back to Ed Voices. This is Steve Snyder. I'm here with uh, Andy Hargraves. And is it Andy or is it Dr. Hargraves or is it uh, Professor? It is Andy Hargraves to almost everybody. Okay, perfect. All right. Andy, uh, there, there, is a, uh, there, there was recently an article uh, in Ed Modo um, uh, that was republished on several blogs, and I guess it was it appeared in the Washington Post as well, um, giving the opportunity to, to, uh, to live vicariously as the next um, Secretary of Education uh, for the United States. And um, one of the things that struck me is that you said that, uh, uh, that Arne Duncan, um, uh, the, the, the Education Secretary uh, uh, under, for most of the term of President Obama, uh, was the Reform Secretary, and that what the U.S. needed going forward was a Learning Secretary. Can you go into that a little bit? Sure. The uh, Reform Secretary, uh, Arne Duncan, had introduced some of the largest relentless waves of uh, school reform probably in American history uh, in terms of um, ramping up even from No Child Left Behind era standardized testing, uh, increasing the emphasis on the evaluation of uh, teachers in relation to uh, test scores, uh, creating uh, financial incentives and regulations to increase the number of charter schools even though the evidence is not compelling either way as to whether charter schools are a good or a bad thing. Therefore, you have to wonder, why is there so much disruption? Why is there so much uh, chaos that doesn't seem to create such a net gain over time? And none of these have seemed to really impact the quality of uh, teaching and learning or to improve uh, equity or to enrich the, the kind of learning experience that kids get in our schools. And it would be great if we had a future Secretary of Education who could really start from the assumption, asking the question, what can they know and how can they find out about the way that America's schools are and the way that America's kids are learning and the, uh, and the kind of experience that American teachers are having. And a simple way to do that is simply, how do you spend your first uh, how do you spend your first 100 days in a lot of organizations? Well, most, most CEOs uh, know that the best way to spend your first 100 days is to find out what people are doing in the organization that you are responsible for. And if you could somehow get across uh, 50 states uh, in your first 100 days, picking schools at random, just not to praise or vilify, but to find out what, what the life is like for people there, then I think you'd learn things like uh, poverty really is one of the most explicable uh, factors in terms of uh, student learning and student achievement. It's, uh, it's not that a school doesn't make a difference, but if, if you haven't eaten, if you, if you can't sleep, if the noise of gunshots are keeping you awake, if the police are continually coming into the school doing random drug checks and interfering with the uh, instruction, if there's lead poisoning that, uh, that affects just the way your brain works, if your kids have fetal alcohol syndrome because of the opiates uh, that the parents have been on or the alcohol abuse that they've had, all these affect your learning and a teacher has to deal with all that and the refugees and the second and third language uh, kids and the, and the kids are only there for half the year even though their results count 
down to the end of the year. So first of all, get to grips with the scale of the problem. Understand there isn't an average classroom, that achievement isn't just about how hard you work or what effort you put in or uh, whether the teacher is good at their job or not, but it's the capacity of true, very well-trained professionals working together to deal with the range and complexity of children and communities who are in front of them in relation to the kind of knowledge they need to have to function in society, to be good citizens, to be uh, productive, and uh, to en engage with the whole world around them in a wholehearted way. I know you're not a political scientist, but can you, for our international audience, uh, parse in some fashion the apparent dichotomy between a pro progressive president of the United States and Barack Obama and um, what you clearly see as a failure to, to engage um, uh, sort of the, the real problems and, and instead to, to invite in um, uh, uh, more for-profit and corporate and alternative uh, uh, kinds of programs into the U.S. education system. How did that how did that uh, that dichotomy uh, uh, happen in a progressive president versus the the real needs of public education? Well, well, first of all, let's let's cut the president some slack and say that uh, he's done. Uh and his administration have done many things that have uh, benefited uh, children and families and protected them from from harm by pulling America out of what could have been the greatest uh, depression since uh, the 1930s. He's kept families in uh, work and enabled support for their children by restructuring uh, the health service. Uh, there are many children in uh, poor families who now have access to good health care, who wouldn't have had access to good health care before. And if, if kids are healthy when they come to school, if they're hearing and their vision and their teeth and uh, are, are not a problem, they're just more prepared uh, to learn. So, so indirectly, this president and his administration have had a lot of beneficial effects on, uh, on children and families. What has been uh, more puzzling is is the policy on K to twelve on K to twelve education, and uh, there are really two things uh, behind that. One that probably many people will know, and probably one that they're not aware of. Uh, and the one that people will know is that um, in a difficult economy globally. The question is always, is uh, where's the next area of profitability? Where's the next uh, market? Uh, is it another country or another people like uh, Eastern Europe or China, uh, for example? Is it uh, another part of uh, the population uh, like women uh, 20, 30 years ago by bringing more women into the workforce and keeping women in the workforce? You're, as well as equity, you're also creating new markets, new new purchasing power, so is it uh, new technology and, uh, and the digital revolution? So the question in the last 10 years has really been uh, if manufacturing is in decline and if the property market was, was in a slump, where's the next big market? And the answer was the next big market is children, uh, the next big market is schools, the next big market is selling technology to children and schools. The next big market is uh, selling uh, is selling uh, data to uh, data companies and then to school districts and and then to state department. The next big market is uh, is testing and uh, and uh, testing uh, companies. So, 
So, uh, the, you know, the estimate of uh, multi-billion dollar moguls from around the world who are extremely influential in this uh, sphere is that education is the massive new big market and so it is market interests that have driven a lot of uh, school reform, market interests by uh, opening up uh, more and more charter schools which also get public funding but do not take their full range of uh, students by lowering the cost of teaching, by reducing the length of uh, preparation, making entry uh, easier, keeping teachers in teaching for shorter periods and then urging them to move on, like Teach for America grads after, after two or three years. Uh, so you don't stay, you don't get unionized, you don't get expensive, you don't get in the way. Uh, so you can pass through what reforms you want with little opposition or uh, resistance. And uh, people like Diane Ravitch have uh, written quite extensively about where all this money comes from, how it is uh, exercised, and how in places like the US and England, uh, to some extent Sweden, education is the big new market and has been pushed ideologically in a particular direction, not for the benefit of children or learning or the future society, but for the benefit of a particular kind of economy. And that's a story that lots of people have told. Uh, and it has a lot of evidence uh, behind it. And it's about running down public education, running down uh, the teaching uh, profession, and uh, building up uh, private uh, and alternate courses for uh, families to take hold of to put their kids through. Uh, what people are perhaps less knowledgeable about or familiar with is um, uh, many leaders when they move into politics and they're thinking about an education strategy, they build it on a sample of one. And the sample of one is themselves. Uh, and it is uh, what kind of experience they had when they were a child, how it hurt them. In which case we've had leaders around the world who were punished uh, public education teachers because of the negative experiences that uh, leaders had of their own school experience. Or alternatively, what saved them? What, what rescued them, possibly from uh, poverty, failure? What lifted them out from amongst their peers? And uh, President Obama had uh, an experience of being educated in, uh, in a magnet school. The, purpose of magnet schools actually promoted by Bill Clinton uh, was to find a way of combating this constant wave of inequity that America faces. Uh, when, when we integrate, then people move communities. When, when you have white flight, it's then how do you keep kids how, how do you keep smart, smart kids in the city? How do, you keep, how do you keep black kids in good schools? So magnet schools came from a constant fight against uh, inequity, but then they divided the magnet schools from the kids in other schools as an unintended consequence. So what was good for Barack Obama was possibly not good for lots of other kids who didn't get the chance to go to magnet schools, who did have uh, disabilities, whose parents didn't choose or weren't able to choose because they didn't know or were in prison or were, were somewhere else. So um, the, the difficulty and the challenge for all leaders is to beware of generalizing from a sample of one that what was good for you as a leader in your education and in a way saved and elevated you would necessarily be good for everyone else's children as well. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing or a wicked thing. I think it's a, it's a common thing. 
and it uh, and it and it takes good government and good communities of people in government to prevent a policy being built on the externalization of a sample of one that that then coalesces with a big moment in the global economy and on lots of forces that that find an unholy alliance with this biographical case to create a global movement that's becoming very unsettling and disturbing for many children and families, particularly those from poor communities. I have to ask you one final sort of political question before we talk about some policy, uh, because it's a natural. The, the decision has been made um, at, the, at the federal level, uh, an agreement between the Congress and the, and the teacher unions included, um, uh, to move policymaking uh, more toward the states, away from yeah. the federal government. Do you have a prediction on what uh, what's in store for uh, uh, the, the concerns you have about the uh, um, uh, the role of poverty and inequity in, in education? It, it, will, will we see some amelioration and some change in that now? Uh, well, uh, first of all, even under Race to the Top, we had some somewhat rebellious states, uh, which either gained uh, waivers like uh, New Hampshire, for example, from the policy in exchange for uh, in exchange for modifications in their own uh, policies and uh, some outright rebellious states uh, like Vermont for example which refused the race to the top money and had to send uh, a letter to all parents that all their schools were failing which is clearly such a preposterous letter nobody could possibly believe that every single state in your school is is failing when uh, when one kid needs a whole pass uh, they need a whole pass. When every kid has a whole pass, then the, the whole idea of a whole pass is, is redundant. And it's the same, it's the same with the idea of uh, failure. So uh, we already have interesting examples of uh, states that have taken their own path, uh, not had uh, standardized testing in the way that much of America has, not had teacher evaluation in the way that America has. Vermont performs uh, extremely well. It performs uh, with uh, similar levels of poverty. It, it performs uh, at the kind of level that Massachusetts does, which is uh, more competitive and uh, market-based and uh, supports uh, charter schools and standardization. Uh, but Vermont has better equity uh, than uh, Massachusetts, by, uh, which is kind of interesting, given that it does, doesn't have these policies. So we already have uh, some state variation. And uh, some states have pursued that quite aggressively. Some have wanted what the federal government uh, wanted them to do and have, and have aligned with it. And some have uh, begrudgingly uh, accommodated to it. What ESSA does is uh, almost create uh, a, a new playing field. It, it gives not total discretion, uh, but it gives a lot more discretion to states about um, what the policies will be, what lines they, what lines they will follow. Uh, the concerns, I think, will be um, how the traditional resources that have been allocated through the Elementary and uh, Secondary Education Act will be, will be allocated in order to offset uh, issues of uh, poverty and disadvantage. And I think we still have to wait and see what, what that will look like and how it will unfold. Um, and then I think we have a, a question which is a networking question. And that is um, America, to some degree, federally, 
has at least engaged with other countries globally in terms of uh, how they seem to perform and how they do well. Of course, it it selected the strategies that it prefers to adopt rather than not adopt, but it's it's been engaged with the global community, with countries like Germany and Singapore and uh, and Finland to see what it might be able to learn or adopt from those countries. Um, take that away, and then there's a the question: Well, how will states learn? Um, will a bad state become like a bad classroom teacher who's you're, you're locked up in your own state all the time and you're unable to learn from other people, especially when you have taxpayers who scrutinize the expenditure of uh, public dollars. You want to send five, pe five teachers to another state, let alone another country, to learn how they're doing and that will come under great scrutiny. So I, I worry because of the excesses of, of accountability, whether each state will become an island um, and uh, will fail to learn from each other. And the, one of the best ways you learn is by seeing what other people are doing and uh, picking up some of their strategies that are successful and doing that across, across classrooms, across schools, across districts and across uh, countries and cultures as well. So we, we will need a new architecture and culture uh, that supports uh, states uh, learning and taking collective responsibility for each other's growth and success over time. That architecture isn't there now. Um, it, it will not grow accidentally. It will need something quite deliberate to make it possible. You've been a strong advocate for classroom teachers and, and policies that support uh, uh, educators. Is uh, are there techniques, pedagogy that is that is uh, sort of fundamental uh, work that is transferable across state and nat national and international boundaries uh, that that is that bears taking a look at in terms of really providing that those communication links, those networking pathways. Well, uh, part of your answer is uh, historical and part of your answer is, um, is statistical. Uh, the historical answer would tell you that um, schools that can somehow combine ways of engaging kids with what interests them or with what might interest them, they're not the same things. So sometimes the teacher's job is to get kids interested in stuff they don't even know exists. Harry Potter is not in your local community uh, but kids are fascinated and gripped by Harry Potter so part of a teacher's job is to find what is in the local community uh, environment, what are the learning opportunities, what's a place-based uh, curriculum uh, and what that will look like in different places to find ways to engage. If a kid is engaged, a kid will achieve. If a kid is not engaged, it's much less likely that, that a kid will achieve over time. And we do have a lot of research on that, that engagement is, is a really strong mediating variable. Uh, that, that before you get achievement, you'll get engagement. You can get achievement without engagement for a while, or if you have strict draconian parents or strict draconian uh, teachers but it's a much better path to get the engagement and then 
and, and then the achievement. And you do that by connecting with kids' existing interests and introducing them to new interests they never knew they had. Uh, I'm an obsessive-compulsive hiker. I've walked about 40% of the Appalachian Trail now. I've walked almost the entire length of Britain. I've done 300 miles in uh, South Africa, about 12, 15 days in New Zealand, and almost all of the 580-mile Bruce Trail in Ontario, Canada. Where did this come from? It came from uh, uh, my eldest brother, uh, who, when I was uh, about 13, after my dad died when I was 12, would take me on long, crazy hikes uh, in the wilderness in England with no equipment, just my school shoes, um, uh, in the pouring rain for 25, uh, 30 miles or so. Uh, it's an interest I didn't have, but an interest he introduced me to, and something that has stayed with me as a source of absolute pleasure and joy and focus for the rest of my life and this is what brothers can do and it's what teachers can do one of the great things teachers do as well as raising achievement is introduce kids to things that stay with them for the entire rest of their lives a, a musical instrument a, a sporting activity a love of geography or travel or whatever it might be so engage, en engaging kids around things that interest them or might interest them is, is one of the core things pedagogically uh, that, that, that teachers can and should do. And then to do that non-ideologically. So I visit uh, quite a lot of schools as part of my work and uh, in Scotland and in Iceland. I've seen in the same school uh, kids who will have a day focused, kids in junior high school have a day focused on the arts uh, and they'll rotate around the way that they do that as a core part of their experience. And then as you walk up the stairs, you'll see the times tables printed under each stair. Um, it's the same school. They value the times tables. They value the arts. Uh, there's discipline uh, and engagement and practice all at the same time. So engagement's important. Introducing people to interests is, is important. And then we know some other things are important as well from the work of people like uh, John Hattie. So it's easy to say but harder to do. Just giving people reasonably prompt uh, feedback on, on how they're doing in a, in, a, in a positive but not a bland or naive way. So that you know when you've done your work, you get it back on time. And, and, and it's with comments you can understand. You have opportunity to sit down with your teacher and talk about your progress and how you're doing and how you're responding. Your teacher's interested in how you're interpreting uh, the material, the sense you're making of it and how it fits into your life. So uh, different cultures will do that in very different ways. Um, but the basic idea, should I get feedback on how I'm doing? Absolutely. And that'll help me move forward. One final question, and it's a policy question. You've talked and been a critic of the of the, the ways that the, uh, what's called professional learning communities have operated and, and what, the way they have come to be uh, interpreted or, or exercised in, in, the, in the schools. Um, uh, at the same time, you sound in some of your writing and some of your comments have very hopeful about what a professional learning community can be. Can that engagement and that sort of sense of, of that ambitious sense of engaging students be shared among teachers? And in a, in a, do you have a, a positive view about how, going forward, uh, these communities or these networks of teachers can can 
increase each other's enthusiasm and practice? Well, well, uh, I can begin answering your question with a very concrete example. So we're doing a research project with uh, 10 school districts in uh, Canada, a seventh of the school districts seeing how they're implementing the fourfold vision of the province, which is uh, to pursue excellence, very broadly defined, which includes the arts and other areas as well, to enhance all kinds of equity, including for Indigenous or what we call Native Canadian uh, students, to uh, develop well-being uh, for the kids and for the teachers, actually, for both of them, uh, and to maintain public confidence in the, in the quality of the educational system. So we've been seeing how schools are implementing that, what sense they're making of it. And uh, one of the schools we, we went to um, has had uh, professional learning communities for quite some time. They were introduced at first because expectations for Indigenous students were very low. Uh, teachers felt that, that not only could the kids not read, but they could barely speak. Uh, because of historic abuses, abuses to indigenous communities that have been uh, borne by the children. And so they wanted to care for the students, but didn't really feel the students could learn much. And at first, professional learning communities began as principal-run professional learning communities, trying to get the teachers focused, to, to look at some data, um, uh, to see where some kids had achieved and learn from the ones who were achieving in this school or in another school somewhere else. So uh, at first, at first, the kind of the hard end of professional learning communities did get some teachers' attention uh, in seeing discrepant data before them about what it was that, that kids could do. But teachers being teachers, as soon as as soon as the, they can see what the issue is, they'll kind of get on top of it. And the principal-led professional learning communities fairly soon became uh, redundant. They outlived their usefulness. And teachers, whose capacity had really grown, didn't, um, didn't particularly like anymore the principals deciding what they should talk about, when they should talk about it, who they should talk about it with, and possibly even what the result of talking about it would be. And so then we met a professional learning community sitting down and uh, they were phys ed teachers with ordinary classroom teachers and the phys ed teachers had discovered that with a hockey program, an ice hockey program, uh, that um, uh, kids, indigenous kids who showed uh, no leadership or motivation or engagement in the classroom were showing incredible leadership on the hockey rink and in the locker room. Um, so move the kids from one environment to another and kids who couldn't learn, couldn't get engaged, couldn't take leadership were suddenly showing leadership, engagement, learning and so then they were sitting down with other classroom teachers in ways that they decided figuring out what are the skills that, that they're demonstrating or picking up on the hockey rink that are transferable to a regular classroom and what would a regular classroom need to look like to to embed and embody those and if that sounds bizarre another small example from this school is um, is um, uh, so some of the kids were literally climbing the walls because uh, uh, they got uh, fetal alcohol uh, problems they could concentrate for 20 minutes but no more so they were literally climbing the walls. They got kitchen equipment in the room and they were climbing up the cabinets. So teachers sat down and said, what should we do about this? They sat down together. And the answer was, we'll put a climbing wall in the classroom. We used to send the kids down the hallway. Now they have a climbing wall in the classroom. A rubber mat underneath it. 
and the kids need to climb, they just go climb. They get it out of their system for five, seven minutes. Then they can sit down, they can concentrate, they can learn again. These are what professional learning communities of a sustainable kind really are. Teachers sitting down together, knowing the kids, uh, figuring out together what sometimes really formidable challenges uh, the kids face. And then understanding what other phys ed teachers know, what other classroom teachers know. Not two completely different worlds, but how can they pull their knowledge to figure out how the kids can get a consistent, high quality, engaging and successful learning experience across the whole school and, and, and teachers love to do te te teachers don't go into work thinking how can I stop my kids learning they, they want to help their kids learn they want their colleagues to help them to do that and they want to believe that even the most incredible obstacles that their kids encounter are surmountable with the teacher's help and that's a professional learning community is the principal part of that? absolutely can the principal set that up? Absolutely. Should, should the principal control, regulate, micromanage that? Only in the last resort when other ways of getting it going aren't yet available or haven't yet been started. Okay. So you find yourself hopeful then about, I guess the question would be, Sorry, that, that was a great answer to, the, to a question you didn't ask. Well, no, that's, that, that's a, that, it, it, it's a great elucidation of what you've seen in terms of professional learning communities, how they can work. Is there a way for those to, can you replicate those, is technolo does technology have a role or uh, sort of cross, is there a way to, to leverage the success in one location, communicate it, and, and, and see it replicated in other locations because of techniques that are can be sta or not standardized, but are basic and yeah. can be transferable. There's there's many ways you can you can help uh, support it and replicate it. Funding helps support it and uh, replicate it. Funding that um, uh, gives teachers release time so that they can spend time with other teachers during during the school day. Um, uh, funding for the the best funding works with an initiative not to give one or two teachers lots of time and the rest of the teachers no time, but to give lots of teachers little bits of time so that they can, so that they can work together on things that are of compelling importance for them within their community. Uh, and then the leadership that enables that to happen. So the principal being able to sometimes understand that, that it's really important to have strong instructional leadership within a school, but the principal isn't always necessarily the strongest instructional leader. Just like the coach isn't always or usually the best player on the team and has rarely been the best player. What, what they're good at, they're good enough, they know what playing looks like, but their gift is how to get the best out of all the other players on the team. Sometimes recognising a lot of the players know how to play a, a lot better than they do. So there's a kind of humility about about being a principal, which is um, this is important. I'm kind of responsible with the teachers for really good instructional uh, instruction and instructional leadership. Um, but it may be that there's a whole group of people here who know a lot more about this than I do. Um, my job is to get them to work together and to create the supporting conditions that can do that. And, and part of that is, is enabling uh, teachers to see what teachers in other schools are doing, uh, both physically, face-to-face, -face, 
and creating the time and the resources to make that possible. Even sometimes if it means I'll take, the, I'll take two classes for an afternoon, uh, bring in a visiting speaker or uh, whatever it might be, so that two teachers can get out and see on a program that's of importance to us what's happening in, in another school, maybe in another state, or it may just be kind of two miles down the street from, from where they are. Uh, beginning to, as more and more places are now doing also, to create digital platforms uh, where teachers can do that. So I'm engaged in supporting a network of schools, in rural schools in the Pacific Northwest, where some schools are two hours from the nearest highway. So you're not going to get an afternoon off seeing it's going to take you the afternoon to get there, basically. Uh, so they meet twice a year with a bit of funding, all the schools from these five states uh, that are quite isolated in very different kinds of rural communities. But in between, they also communicate by, uh, uh, by webinar. Um, they'll share problems of practice together. They'll develop curriculum together. They've done this in relation to Common Core through things like place-based learning in job-alike groups of language art teachers or math teachers. Um, and you need enough face-to-face -face in order to sustain it. But also virtual platforms in between to keep the interaction, to keep the interaction and the work going between them. So uh, resources matter, leadership matters. Um, um, Virtual platforms and technology can help a lot, but they're not a substitute, uh, a 100% substitute for the other ways that, that teachers have to engage professionally. But, but we have many means to do it, and um, we should get started. Andy Hargraves, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Enjoyed today's podcast? then don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest Ed Voices.